Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, David, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Michael, it's great to be here. Definitely excited to talk to you. You know, when someone told me that David Siegel wants to be on the show, I thought, wow, the former CEO of WeWork and Investopedia, we're going to have a lot to talk about. So the interesting thing about your career is that you're now at Meetup, you're at WeWork and you're at Investopedia. And I noticed all these companies were about communities. So are you like passionate about communities, David? Is that your thing? Community is definitely my thing. It is definitely my jam. So at Meetup, for people that, have, that don't know Meetup, we have over 300,000 communities on our platform. We're the largest platform in the world for finding community in 190 different countries, pretty much almost every country besides perhaps North Korea. Um, and we have 57 million people who are part of some kind of community. A community could be a hiking group. A community could be a learning Arabic group. Yes. A community could be a tech group, learning technology, all those communities. And I could go into later on kind of why I'm so personally passionate about community. Oh, we're going to talk about it a lot, but let's start off. Where did you start your career? What's the starting point for all of this? You know, it's funny when you say, how do you, when do you start your career? For me, the earliest stage of career starting probably was all the way back when I was a college student. And I decided to take on uh, a, a, number, a summer internship and work while I was in school. And I could tie back becoming a, a three-time kind of president or CEO of a pretty well-known company all the way back to 30 years ago when I worked for a consulting firm. Uh, and, and it started there. Essentially, I had no idea what I wanted to be when yes. I grew up. Like all consultants. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I've been told, well, if you don't really aren't a specialist in anything, because at the time I was a philosophy, political science and economics major, didn't know anything, then the best thing to do is become a consultant. And then you could kind of get paid to figure out what you want to be when you grow up. So I applied and I sent uh, a letter at the time. There was even no email, by the way. We're talking about the mid 90s. I sent a letter to 50 of the largest consulting firms yes. and I got 50 rejections from 50 consulting firms. <laughs> and I put up all the rejections on my wall as a source of pride because I tried and I was yes. like, I tried. <laughs> and I finally had one firm say, we forwarded your resume to the Philadelphia office because I went to undergraduate at yes. University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And you were the only person that they got. So because you were the only person that applied, you could be a summer intern at the <laughs> William Mercer, which is a well-known human resources management yes, consulting yes. firm. And, and that actually was the first real major lucky, quote unquote, though it wasn't lucky because I sent out 50 applications, yes. kind of win for me. And then there's a whole host of different things that happened because of that William Mercer um, internship that I had. You know, back when I was uh, 19 years old. 
It's funny you're talking about Mercer because this morning I had a podcast with the senior partner and global head of transformation from Mercer on the podcast. So really? Your previous <laughs> employer was on the line. But I actually I saw it. on your resume, MBA from Wharton, I thought you must have been a consultant at some point, at least a banker. You went to Wharton, right? So, so we got yes. that right. So you went into Mercer, right? So most consultants do not naturally gravitate towards entrepreneurship. It's true. It's true. Um, they're more professional in nature. And, um, you know, I, I worked in, in consulting, then I worked in consulting after undergraduate, then I ended up getting hired by DoubleClick, which at the time was one of the yes. most successful internet companies in the late 90s. They were my client. I was yeah. a consultant to DoubleClick. They were my biggest client. And then they hired me. And then I decided to go to Warden for business school, you know, and then from there, um, work in a series of more entrepreneurial, building out new businesses, oftentimes within larger companies uh, type roles. And, uh, you know, that's, I'm happy to, to share more about that. But, but, you know, I quickly realized consulting was not what I wanted to do. And I wanted to kind of move into um, working um, uh, directly within an organization. So you worked for large companies. And then when did the switch come to becoming CEO of WeWork and Investopedia? At what point in your career? Sure. And, and just to clarify for everyone, I was actually definitely never the CEO of WeWork. I was the um, president of Seeking Alpha. Then I became the um, CEO of, of uh, Investopedia. Yes. And I could go into each of those. And then I became the CEO of Meetup, which is owned by WeWork. But the CEO was it. always Adam Newman, the famous Adam Newman. Yes, yes. Well, let's talk about Investopedia, right? Because sure. I've been discussing Investopedia with many partners on the podcast. And one of the things that Investopedia is known for is this passionate, crazy fan base of editors. How do you instill that yeah. desire in someone to want to edit 38 articles on the abstract of the Peloponnesian Wars? I mean, how do you get people to do that? Yeah, so Investopedia is the world's largest financial education um, site out there. It gets 20 to 30 million people each month coming to use the, uh, use the site. It gets a lot of MBA students yes. and a lot of students because, and for me, it was a personal project because from the lack of financial education is such a problem across yes. the world and people make poor decisions around it. So what are the things we did at Investopedia is we have over 50 to 100,000 articles Yes. on our site. And because we've been around for so many years, our search engine optimization, our SEO ranks so high. If you look up any term, yes. any financial term, Investopedia is going to be number one or number two. And, and then the key for us is to keep editing, like you mentioned, and updating it. Because if you let it sit and you don't update it and add, like, let's say you have a term like uh, negative interest rates yes. is a term. So if you don't add information around Japan had a policy of negative interest rates over X period of yes. time. And then XYZ company country did the same thing, become stale, you, you go down the search rankings, and then ultimately you lose traffic, you lose traffic, you lose revenue because the source of revenue for Investopedia was advertising. While I was there, we grew the revenue and it was actually a part of IAC. So Barry Diller um, was, the, was the owner of ultimately of Investopedia. Yeah. And we grew the company from about 11 million in revenue to 35 million in revenue over four years. And then we sold the company. And, uh, and then I left after selling Investopedia. But okay. uh, the reason why editors tend to like working for it is yes. because um, they know that what they write is going to be read and is going to be seen because we have 
you publish something on uh, Motley Fool or Yahoo Finance or any of the other sites, it might be read. We published on Investopedia, our rankings so high that there's going to be a lot more eyeballs on it. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Whenever I'm looking up something in finance, some term I forgot, Investopedia is a first port of call. It shows up first. And one thing I like about Investopedia is it tells you who wrote the article. Yes, very important. And it tells you then who edited the article. It has more legitimacy. Yes. Now, here's the thing that I've never thought about. So search engine optimization, it was a big strategy for Investopedia. And around that, it was about getting the best people to write, but also constantly updating the articles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But how did you make Investopedia the authority on finance to get people to link to it? Ah, that's the big one. Yeah, that's always important because as part of SEO, one of the important things is, it, you know, for people who don't know SEO well enough, every link to an article is considered by Google as like a vote, yes. as a vote saying, hey, I trust this. Hey, I trust that. And I work for organizations that have, you know, link bait out there and they do these top 10 lists and they have people that call up other companies to try to yes. get them to link. Ultimately, that's not a sustainable process. It's, it's too much human intervention. It's too much human intervention. It's not scalable. It costs money. It's not necessarily ROI positive. And Google getting smarter and smarter about those types of things. Yes. So for us, we believe it or not, we just say we're going to write the best possible content out there. But we also develop relationships with large publishers, Yahoo, CNN, CNBC, a whole other, a whole host of financial publishers. And when we did publish articles, we would share those articles with the publishers and oftentimes they would choose to, to link to those articles. But because we were the definition for a lot, so many different financial terms, we became the go-to place that if someone wrote an article on, you know, again, negative interest rates or Lehman's formula or, or whatever the esoteric topic might be, um, they would link to helping people to understand it through Investopedia. When I was preparing for the call, I actually pulled up a few terms on Investopedia and a few on Wikipedia. Uh -huh. And I find that the depth in Investopedia is much superior to what's in Wikipedia. So I find Wikipedia is good at writing about general topics, history, natural events, historical events. But when you get into technical terms, Wikipedia uh -huh. comes up very short. Yeah, and part of that is because Wikipedia, as you know, is a crowdsourced platform yes. where the people that do the writing, it could be anyone like you and me who may or may not be specialists in the area because for investing, there is a real specialization that's required. We did not have any of the content that was crowdsourced, but all of it is written by kind of experts in the field and the business has done well. And particularly during the pandemic, of course, I had already let, sold the company. I became CEO of Meetup. I was already under the WeWork umbrella, but the company has grown quite a bit because of all the uh, different scandals and, and things yeah. going on with AMC and BlackBerry yeah. and GameStop and all the other kind of interesting things happening with day trading during from Robinhood, you know, during this period of time. It's been interesting to be a financial publisher. So when you worked at uh, Investopedia, how did you get the writers? They approached you? Did you source the best writers? How does that work? Oh, yeah. No, you can't, you can't wait for people to approach you. Um, you source it out. So we, what we did is we had a cadre of maybe 10 to 12, 10 to 15 full-time editors on staff, but each editor was, was responsible for their area, personal finance, investing, trading, whatever the yes. area happened to have been. And each editor was responsible to manage a cadre of 20, 30, 40 different editors that were that, that freelance editors and freelance writers that would be kind of in their area. So it was, it was very much a, uh, a discipline where 
Um, each editor had a lot of flexibility in building out their teams, but their teams were, were a group of freelancers where there would be deep expertise in areas. So if someone had expertise in Bitcoin, but didn't have necessarily broader expertise in blockchain, or someone knew about Ethereum, but didn't know about Dogecoin or whatever the, the you know, yes. type of cryptocurrency is, then we wanted to get that expertise. And therefore, for that reason, it's always better to do that from a freelance standpoint than to do it um, in another way. The other thing that we did is we don't necessarily pay people um, by the amount of traffic that you get, because yeah. what happens then is people create clickbaity stuff. People only want to focus on big, big, large cap companies. We, we, it was the same price regardless of whether they were writing about a well-known company or a much smaller company. So that's interesting. This conversation is very appealing to me because it's like, you know, when you meet a celebrity that you know and you learn about how they live, now you, I'm learning about how Investopedia developed because I've used this website forever. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to understand the mechanics of how things work. So you'd have this um, almost an army, for lack of a better word, of freelance writers mm -hmm. who were paid per word. How was the payment structure set up? Yeah, paid per article. So paid per article. It's just like any article. other journalist. Short article, article, less money, long article, long money, more money. And you'd look for people with technical expertise in these areas. Yep. And then we would tell them what to write about. So we would get an understanding through actually different people that worked in machine learning and data yes. science and our team of where was there a big disconnect between supply and demand, meaning on what topics was there a significant amount of demand for a certain um, information around investing and which areas was there a lack of supply? And when there was a high demand, low supply, we'd say, oh, let's write a whole bunch of articles related to this because we know lots of people want this. And there's a whole bunch of different tools that one could use to find out that, cement, that, that demand supply imbalance. Okay. So then the rise in Investopedia's revenue, that came from more eyeballs, better articles, or were there other products put behind that? No, really, it's a simple business. Um, you write good articles, write quality articles. You don't have too much aggressive of an ad experience. You have a great user experience. People stay on the, on the site. Um, uh, Google rewards you for that, and that results in more traffic. Uh, and each time you have traffic is monetized through, through advertising. So it was a very simple model. I, when I was there, I added some additional revenue streams to uh, our revenue model. So we added uh, a revenue stream around lead generation, which is essentially um, getting dollars. If we provide leads for credit cards or for opening up a brokerage, like an E-Trade brokerage account or um, Ameritrade brokerage account. And we also built a academy called Investopedia Academy while we were while I was there. And that was more of an e-commerce subscription business where people would, um, it was like a MOOC, which stands for Massive Open Online yes. Courses, similar to Udemy or Udacity or yeah. any other um, open online courses that are there. And people could take courses in how to be an effective day trader or how to invest in cryptocurrency yes. or whatever the, the topic may be. And I still love going to the site, you know, four years almost since I've left. And, um, and they're still, you know, selling Investopedia Academy courses, which is awesome. Makes me feel great. Yeah, that's amazing. So in effect, you've built a media operation that was profitable. Yeah, we took a media operation, and then we expanded it from media to, to e-commerce and subscription as well. And in terms of the revenue breakdown, was the majority of the revenue and profits coming from the ad side or the e-commerce subscription side? Yeah, majority was still ads, but the other side drove a significant amount of additional profit every year. And a lot of the growth was also coming from the e-commerce um, and subscription side. 
And the margins were about the same or was one better than the other? Uh, higher margins on the e-commerce side, because once you produce a course, it's like selling software, you can yeah. keep selling that course and the cost, cost of production might be one, uh, might be an upfront cost. But after that, um, everything else is going to be a lot more profitable because it's the same course that you're ultimately selling. Whereas on the ad side, um, there's a whole host of people that, that you're paying, whether it's salespeople, account management people, um, designers, there's a whole host of, of overhead that you have in that business. That's very interesting. So was the plan to turn around Investopedia when you came in and sell it, or was it just coincidence? Oh, that's a good question. So IAC, which is the company that owns Match.com and Tinder and Angie's List and, and Home Advisor and Care.com and uh, a host, host of amazing other companies, um, always focuses on building great businesses. Yeah. You don't build great businesses to sell them. However, um, many of the businesses either go one of two routes. Either they go public as Vimeo has gone public and they've had 10 to 15 different businesses go public or ultimately they get sold. In our case, um, we were sold um, and uh, we were too small really to go public. Okay, so it makes sense, right? You can't survive yeah, by totally. your own, but you need the resources of someone large enough to bulk up. Correct. So yep. when you sold, was Meetup on the cards? How did you arrive at Meetup? Yeah, so we sold and I was planning on taking a whole bunch of time off because uh, I was able to do fine from the sale and I had worked really intensely for 20 plus years. And I get a call from a fellow named Michael Eisenberg, who was a former uh, benchmark um, yes, partner and on the board of advisors, um, or maybe on the board of WeWork. And, and he said to me, David, how well do you know Meetup? And I said, Meetup, oh my God, I am obsessed with Meetup. I love Meetup. I love going to Meetup events. I, I love kind of building community. Yes. I, my, my whole life had been very involved in, in community. Um, he's like, well, you know, WeWork just acquired Meetup about six months ago. Um, the, that we're looking to kind of move on from the current founder. Um, and we'd like you to be the first outside CEO kind of in the company's history. I'd like to set up time for you to meet with Adam Newman. And he, Adam Newman was just so famous and yeah. so interesting that I couldn't pass up meeting Adam Newman. And, uh, and, and it was great. And, and <laughs> it was a process. Uh, it took 27 interviews. I kid you not. 27 um, interviews. <laughs> 27 interviews. Yeah, because I had to meet. I mean, I can't even. It was it was a four month process. You you could tell that there was dysfunctionality in an organization yeah. by the number of interviews you have to do. Yes. So you know, I like to say dating is a good prerequisite for marriage, and and dating and interviewing is a good prerequisite for what life is going to be like. And yes. it was chaotic during this during the interview process, and it certainly was chaotic kind of being part of WeWork as well. Um, and then I had to get buy-in from every person at Meetup as well, meeting them multiple times, multiple yes. people, you know, et cetera. But at the end, finally, after four months and 27 different interviews, <laughs> um, I, was, I was hired to become the CEO of Meetup. Now, you cover all of this in your book, you know, Decide and Conquer, which I think is a good book. But let's just, um, for the sake of the listeners, I want to spend more time on your efforts, ongoing efforts at a meetup, right? So I've used meetup in the past. I can't even remember. It was many, many, it was a long time ago, right? 
-hmm. But let's talk through some of the challenges you faced at Meta, particularly after 27 interviews. That alone tells you there's some problems there. So how do you plan for your role at Meta? Let's forget what happened when you joined Meta. So you've been through 27 interviews. You get a sense. You've basically done 27 focus interviews. Yes. Yes. So I got a full sense that there was an enormous amount of misalignment between everyone. Yes. The president of WeWork thought one thing. The, the CEO of WeWork thought another thing. The CEO and founder of Meetup thought another thing. The executive team of Meetup thought a different thing. I mean, all across the board. Some people thought that the company uh, needs to focus on revenue more. Some people thought need to retrench from revenue, yes. focus more on building a much more quality product user experience. I mean, it was just... Some people thought some people were great and other people were terrible. Some people thought the exact opposite. It, it, there was so much inconsistency. It was actually quite terrifying. Yes. And the thing that I did and things that I tend to like to talk about, and it's also in the book, is how important it is for a new leader, whatever level you come in, CEO or even manager, yes. to prepare for that day one yeah. really effectively. Not just kind of come in cold day one, do your orientation and move on, yes. um, but to what's called your day zero or even day negative one. How are you preparing to hit it out of the park right when you start a job? You went through the interview process and you learn a lot from that. But then what I did is my first week, I wasn't even announced to the company. I met in a WeWork actually outside of the office with executives, with people from WeWork, with others. And I just, um, and we aligned essentially on six to eight areas where there's massive um, misalignment in the company. And those would be kind of my focus topics for how we would figure out the future of, of Meetup and what to prioritize. Because like people say, startups die more of indigestion than starvation. And Meetup was being so challenged because it was doing a hundred different things yeah. all of them not well, or many of them not well. Um, and, and we needed to kind of deprioritize a lot and focus to be more successful. So when you were arriving on that first day, what messages were you trying to deliver through your decision to meet, for example, offsite? Because clearly there was a thought process there. What were the decisions, the messages that you're trying to get across to your leadership team, even to the employees? Sure. Yeah. Very important. So the employees all saw a new CEO. There are 250 employees. Yeah. They had a big meeting. Everyone come down, meet the new CEO. And, and, you know, I had to stand up in front of everyone with the president yeah. of WeWork standing right next to me and the founder of Meetup also giving me, giving me an introduction. And they were like, okay, David, what's the strategy of the company going to be? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, okay, let me start with this. I don't have a clue. Mm -hmm. I don't have a plan and, and I shouldn't have a plan. And if anyone were to come in on day one and tell you that they have a plan, then that's a problem. All I have is a plan to figure out what the plan is going to be. That's what right. I've got. And the way in which we're going to succeed as a company is because we're going to garner the collective help and intelligence and thoughtfulness of every single person in this room. And you are going to be a part of figuring out how we're going to prioritize and what we're going to deprioritize. I'm not, I'm going to set the structure for it. And that structure is going to help to enable us to make smarter decisions. So then what we did is we created these eight kind of work streams around the eight topics that we knew were um, priorities for the coming example. Yeah. One is what things do we need to stop doing that we're doing right now? That's an yeah. obvious one. Or, or how do we improve the retention rate and more engagement from our members? Whatever the topics were. Um, what does the meetup brand stand for? 
those, you know, certain topics. And we asked each person to volunteer. They didn't have to do it if they didn't want to join one of these work streams. We ended up having over half the company volunteer. We had a head of each work stream. And for two straight weeks, for 10 days, that work stream had to meet every day for at least an hour. And at the end of two weeks, they put together a series of recommendations. And I did a check-in to all the work streams during these times. And at the end, they made some incredible suggestions. Yeah. And then rather than the new CEO coming in and saying, we got to cut this, we got to cut yeah. that, we got to stop doing this. Instead, I said, hey, you're right. I'm going to listen to what you told me that you think we should do. So we're going to not do this. We're going to not do this. We're going to not do this. We're going to shut this area down because that is your recommendation. And then it got the buy-in of everyone because it was no longer, you know, the new CEO who doesn't know anything coming in and pretending like I know something. Instead, it was me trying to ask smart questions, actively listen, empower others to make smart decisions, and then execute quickly. So when you came in, what was the problem as such with Meetup, if any? What is the central challenge facing Meetup? Yeah, the central challenge for Meetup was WeWork. <laughs> so what I mean by that is that the WeWork had a shadow yes. over Meetup in a number of different ways. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One way was culturally, in that WeWork was all about growth for growth's sake. Yes. Getting Meetup to just, even if it didn't have the right technical infrastructure, even if it didn't have the right user experience, it was grow, 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 we'll figure it out later. And that was kind of the WeWork way. And the challenge with applying the WeWork culture to the company that had acquired Meetup is that Meetup was not that type of culture, was not in that type of position. And there was this enormous tension in all the metrics that Meetup was being evaluated by around growth. I mean, I kid you not, one of the metrics that was a top priority that WeWork told Meetup was the number of employees they needed to hire. I mean, hire as many employees as possible was actually a metric. Like, that's crazy. It's, yeah. it's about hiring the right people. It's about hiring when, when you need to hire people. It's about being cost-effective, about hopefully driving profit, but it's not about maximizing the number of people you hire. Um, but that was actually a KPI, a key performance indicator. So that's one challenge on the cultural side. But the other challenge that was kind of the big shadow over Meetup at the time was there was a um, deep belief by WeWork that the reason that they acquired Meetup was because they wanted to build community into WeWork offices. Yeah. That every WeWork would have multiple Meetup events, that WeWork would have a differentiated kind of co-working experience because Meetup would help to facilitate all these amazing experiences in WeWork offices. And there was a millions of dollars were spent then by, by, Meetup, by Meetup in integrating with all these different WeWork systems. And rather than spending money and time in making a better experience for Meetup members. Instead, it spent a lot of money and time in trying to integrate with the technology of its parent company. Yeah. And that's a problem. That's not where you wanna be spending your time and energy. So it sounds as if what happened is that Meetup was not able to operate at its full potential because it was being cloistered into doing something that wasn't best for it. Right, it was, there's a famous saying that when it comes to the, the parent company of a, of a child, you know, WeWork being the parent and um, Meetup being the child, that big companies eat their young at times. 
and 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 WeWork was not helping Meetup to to drive success, and ultimately, mostly due to the pandemic and due to WeWork's valuation going from forty seven billion dollars down to yes. a lot less, yeah. four or five, six billion, whatever it is it is today. Um, they ultimately decided to divest the company, but they did not do a great job as as kind of a corporate owner. So, are there any? metrics you can share with us that are not confidential to get us give us a sense of the changes that happened at meetup before we get into the steps that you took sure the changes when when we work acquired them when we work acquired them and to the point when we, when we, we were, were divested off. yeah sold off okay yeah. so when when we were sold off um some of the so the big the big change was really on profit so we worked enough focus on profit we worked in care about profit uh, in 2019, Meetup lost over $18 million as a company. Okay. In 2020, with the pandemic, we ended up making $3 million. So we had a $21 million profit improvement after the divestment of WeWork, um, after WeWork divested and sold off Meetup. Yes. So that tells you something about kind of the ability to focus on financial controls and financial yes. discipline. So... That's very interesting, right? Then, and it was during the pandemic when people in theory couldn't meet up in person. Exactly. So, and you stayed as CEO. What yep. was the reasoning for that? I mean, often when you when there's a sale or the transfer of power, the CEO changes. Well, because I'm the person that brought in the buyer. Okay. So, so what, what happened was um, we work went through a sales process and we met with a whole bunch of different companies. And and the book hits on this quite quite a, quite a bit and in detail. Um, and for one reason or another, uh, different companies were excited and they pulled out. And then ultimately the pandemic hit and it was March and WeWork was concerned that Meetup may not even survive the pandemic, which would have been a travesty, frankly, to our 57 million members. And WeWork came to me and he said, okay, David, do, who do you have that you could bring in very quickly that, can, that we can sell the company to? And the person I brought in is someone who's been mentoring me for over 20 years. His name is Kevin Ryan. Yes. He's the founder of Business Insider and Guilt and MongoDB. And um, I was the CEO of DoubleClick, real and Zola, founder of as well, really exceptional person. He um, runs a venture capital firm and built it called Alicorp. And I called him up and I said, you know, hey, we've been talking, you've been giving me advice about potential buyers, because at one point, Bill Ackman was going to be a potential buyer. There were a whole bunch of different people I got advice about, advice from him about. And at one point, he said to me, hey, if the, if the price becomes the right price, make sure to let me know. I called him up and I said, it's the right price. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm not kidding, within two or three days, lawyers were already dra um, drafting documents and contracts. And you know, he said to me, he's never done probably less due diligence on a business, but we had known each other for over 20 years yes. and he trusted me and I trusted him. And it was, it's been a really positive match and we have our board meeting tomorrow and um, all signs are, are, are actually looking, continue to look really good, um, you know, for meetup. Um, so that's why I stayed. I stayed because of him and because of the partnership that we have. Well, I think it's fair to say you both did actually the most important due diligence. You trusted each other. Yes. Yes, it's everything the most trust. important due diligence versus trusting accountants and lawyers who are paid by the hour. Well said, well said. I mean, I once um, was able to sit down with Jack Welch 
um, the the former um, CEO of General Electric, yes. and what what he became known by Time Magazine as the, as the manager of the century, and he was kind of a board advisor for for IAC and friends with Barry Diller, and I presented to IAC's board when I was the CEO of Investopedia, and I sat down with with Jack Walsh and I said, "What's the number one piece of advice you would give in to to a CEO?" And he said, "All that matters." Is you have to build trust with your employees. Yes. Build trust with your employees. It takes care of everything else. And the best way to build trust is with transparency. If you're transparent and you're honest about the good, the bad, and the ugly, then employees will trust you. And you can't go anywhere if you don't have employee trust. And that's the building block of a community. Exactly. A community is all about people being vulnerable with each other, people trusting each other. They're going to share information. I mean, take an example outside a meetup. Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Yes. People are incredibly vulnerable with each other. People trust each other with uh, secrets that they may not even share with their spouses yes. or children or parents or significant others. And the community that exists in AA groups is probably one of the most meaningful communities that, that exists, you know, you know, in, in any kind of an organization or, or, or world. Um, and, and that's the case with, with, with Meetup as well, whether it's, you know, we have many support groups um, at Meetup, and and when people are able to be their authentic selves and and share their challenges, you know that ultimately builds trust, and that's very important for community. Okay, I'm going to come back to a point you made, which is very important. I was not thinking about it when I was thinking about Meetup, but I'll get there later. Let's talk about the turnaround of Meetup. What led to that 24 million odd dramatic change? <laughs> so I think the answer there was focused for us. Um, as a company, we under WeWork, we were pressured, I gave into the pressure to try to do too many different things, yes. to try to drive revenue out of from our member base, to try a subscription business, to try a new business area. And it's funny because it's the opposite of Invest. Investopedia was focused on only one thing and I expanded a number of things and we drove more revenue. Meetup was focused on too many different things and my job was actually to kill things and to focus on fewer things. So there's no real answer, but it's important to think through whether you're too focused or not focused enough. Meetup was not focused enough. So what, we're able, what we were ultimately able to do is since we ended up taking out a lot of the areas that we had been potentially trying and testing and focusing on, we reduced costs in a number of those areas. We renegotiated a whole lot of, of, of contracts. And then we really did a quite a good job in pivoting from only IRL, only in-person, to allowing both in-person and virtual meetup events. And since the pandemic and the two years since the pandemic, we've gone from literally zero events in the first 18 years, not zero, close to zero events in the first 18 years of the company to over 6 million online events on meetup. And over 30 million people have participated in an online event in also 190 different countries around the world. So that embracing of the online rather than just everything having to be in person really helped um, us to sustain us during the pandemic. And that focus was primarily cost cutting or a improvement in revenue? A combination of both. Combination of both. So how does Meetup make money? Ah, okay. So we have two primary, we have some other smaller revenue streams, but two primary revenue streams. The first and most significant is a subscription that our organizers pay is relatively small on a monthly basis. But when you have 
a few, couple hundred thousand organizers, it could add up to yes. something meaningful. Um, and that's the primary source of revenue. So subscription-based recurring revenue subscription business, which is always kind of a great business model to have. Um, the other source of revenue for us and the fastest growing area within the company is our B2B revenue. So what that means is big companies like Google yes. or AWS or Microsoft, these are all our clients and they wanna build community. They wanna build communities of people who are obsessed with Android or obsessed with certain products that they happen to offer. Um, and, and, and what we do is we build communities on behalf of large companies as well, or they'll sponsor different types of communities. So, you know, for example, an REI might sponsor camping communities or um, uh, a tech group, Microsoft might sponsor tech communities. You get the idea. So yes, great. So the first revenue stream is where these organizers, the people setting up events, they pay a nominal monthly fee, subscription base, and there it's all about managing churn. But how do you get new people to become organizers? I'm guessing that's where the growth would be. Absolutely. So the best source of new organizers are the most active members of groups. So over 85% of new organizers are meetup members. And what we do is we look at which members are particularly active. Yes. Um, so yes. let's say that there's a member and it's been going to the Brooklyn Hiking Group for a while. So that Brooklyn Hiking Group member might decide that they want to create something more niche. And it might be yeah. the Brooklyn Hiking Group, um, the Black Brooklyn Hiking Group yeah. um, hikers. And then the Black Brooklyn Hiking Group hikers also might get broad and someone else might say, hey, I want to grow the Black Brooklyn hiking groups that are also amateur photographers. It's niching down. Yes, exactly. We, we, we niche, we, we'll call it spawning. Yes. So we'll spawn kind of many different groups. And, and then sometimes people just want to have been active as in the bowling group and they say, oh, I love meetup. I love the bowling group, but I want to become an organizer for a book club. And they do that. So, so by far the best source of, of new organizers is, um, is members who know our product, who love what we do, and who say, I want to step up and I want to build community, not just uh, be a part of a community, but I want to build a community. I want to be a leader in a community. And that happens uh, you know, hundreds of times a day you know, across the world. So the way it works is an organizer uses their email list, for lack of a better word, to bring people into their community. Yes and no. We, what, what's great about Meetup is we're a dual-sided marketplace. Yes. So what that means is that we have, the organizers, we also have 57 million members. So Meetup's magic is that we help organizers, not just to use their own contacts, yes. we help them to find people, find the right people. So yes. when, when a new group is created, we have also machine learning and data science experts who, who send a uh, email email message or an app notification to someone. So for example, I was traveling and this is, this is a true story. I went with my son to Charlotte, North Carolina. And as part of our trip, we always like to visit meetup groups. And we went to a board game strategy meetup group and we played board games for three or four hours, met some friends, had a great time. Um, and then I came back to New York and I immediately got a message from meetup that said, would you like to join the Westchester County uh, which is where I live, yes. board game group. Now they knew that I lived in Westchester. They knew that I was in New York and they knew that I like board games. So I'm like, yeah, I didn't even know this existed. <laughs> so so we're, we're very good at helping 
like a dating service, yes. match the right people to the right events so that people um, end up um, finding, you know, new and great opportunities to go to. And there's some people that use Meetup for, you know, um, personal, some use it for professional, and some use it for both personal and professional reasons. So on the point of a two-sided marketplace, how do you get the members to join? So on the member side, it goes back to what we talked about with Investopedia, the primary source for us continues to be SEO or search engine optimization. Yeah. Or, and what that means is that when someone is looking for a group, I'm looking for a knitting group. Yes. Or I'm looking for, you know, learning Hebrew, whatever group, they will type that into Google and a recommendation will come up. And oftentimes Meetup will be high on that list to join a group or to go to an event. And, and that's how we drive registrations. We get roughly three to 400,000 uh, new registrations of, of members every single month. And that comes I mean, from people, yeah, it's a big number. We don't pay any money to drive registrations. They're just, um, they're just a result of, of, of the 20 years worth of work that we've done. Yeah, I've just typed in knitting groups in Los Angeles and you guys come up first three. Yay. Yeah, there you go. That's, There's that's, one that's in Glendale. I, mean. I can join that one. It's a bit of a drive, but you know, I can make it work. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's very interesting to me. Your customer acquisition costs are basically nothing. For, so, so we do spend some paid marketing yeah. to acquire organizers. Um, so when I, but we spend nothing really to acquire members. So for organizers, we do spend money on social on, on display, on search to find new organizers. Um, but on the member side, the 300,000 registered registration, three to 400,000 that we get per month, um, that happens organically. So how do you target an organizer versus a member in your advertising? How do you distinguish between them? Yeah, so there's a whole number of different ways. Um, so the first is that if there's an active member, then, and we've seen, um, let's say they've been active in a tech group. Yeah. So there's something called retargeting yeah. and we could use either Critio, which is a technology that we use, or we use Google um, display to retarget um, ads to those individuals to get them to sign up and perhaps provide an incentive to become an organized, like one month free or two months free, whatever that it may be to become an organizer. So that's one. The second is Before that you continue, David, can yeah. you explain that to me again? I just want to make sure I get this. How do you you talked about retargeting. So if, if, they had, if they had visited Meetup in the past, yes, they were able to retarget them on other people's websites. Got it. Well. So, and by sending them those messages of the values of becoming a Meetup organizer, then that's one way. Okay. There's, there's three primary ways. The second way is through search, which is a big acquisition tool for us. And the third is we do a lot from a brand perspective. So I have a podcast um, as well. It's called Keep Connected. We get thousands of people, you know, each episode to listen to the podcast. That helps also with member acquisition. Um, the book, as people read it, will also be interested in, in, in that. And we have a blog with close to 2 million users called Community Matters, where anyone interested in growing community and building community can join the blog. And all those different kind of content marketing also helps to build our brand and helps us to also acquire new members and organizers. So... Search and advertising is a huge part of the way you guys operate. Uh, yes, I would say the most important part is really SEO. Yeah. Um, but the, the followed by that is probably is probably paid opportunities. Yes. Yeah. But again, eighty five percent we get through non paid means. 
Again, I wouldn't say it's huge. I would say optimizing our site so that we rank high in the search engines, much like an Investopedia days, is probably the most important. Um, Besides that, paid is also important, but less important than than organic. Okay, so now I noticed in most of the businesses you worked in, there's a huge component of using search engine optimization Mm-hmm. to drive the business. Is that the legacy of Barry Diller's organization? How does that DNA come across? I mean, in really every digital company, yeah, the best way to acquire people, hands down, is with search engine optimization and having a website that ranks high in Google um, or any other search engine that's out there. And the main reason for that is because it's ultimately sustainable. Um, when you're constantly having to pay yes. to acquire new members and new organizers, then if the cost of acquisition becomes much higher and you're dependent on constantly spending money, then you're going to be a lot less successful than if you're able to just have a you know a continuous stream of people coming into your website because of the fact that you happen to rank high. Now you rank high not because because you're also a quality experience. Google is very, very, very good. You can't trick Google anymore. Google is very, very good at knowing whether something's gonna be a great quality experience like a meetup or an Investopedia, whether something's gonna be a terrible experience and then things will rank much lower on those terrible experiences. I'm not gonna name names, but there's a whole bunch of companies out there that used to rank very high and they got destroyed with numerous Google algorithm changes because they just weren't great experiences when you, when you when you actually went to went to the website, well, they were not trying to improve, right? Correct. It was not a priority for them. They were just kind of tra- take short term dollars, and that's always a challenge. You know, focus on long term. I want to shift to some of the things in your new book around the strategy component. So, when you came into Meetup, right, a lot of things going on. Everyone's excited. One of the biggest challenges in any company is how do you know the core of the business can still be grown versus having to create adjacent products? How do you know where the focus needs to be? How did you know the core was still strong and could grow versus building these adjacent products to bolster revenue? Yeah. And the the way that we knew was because we, and this is to Meetup's credit prior to my joining, Meetup had done quite a good job in, in its customer experience and in tracking something called an NPS or net promoter score. Yes. And net promoter scores, as I'm sure you know, and others know, but it's one of the best ways to ascertain the quality of a brand and the quality yeah. of a business. And Meetup's net pr- promoter score when I joined was negative. I mean, I'd never even seen that before. Yes. Despite the fact that it was negative, despite the fact there was so much critical feedback around the Meetup product, um, this is again, four years ago, close to four years, actually yeah, three and a half years ago. Um we were still acquiring multi, multi hundreds of thousands of, of new registered users, and we were still growing a business. So you have to think to yourself, imagine if the business is not have this negative net promoter score. Imagine if it's an amazing experience. Imagine how many additional organizers we would, we would have. And the challenge was I looked at the, the retention and the churn rate and we were really what's called a leaky bucket. We had acquired, yeah. we required tons of organizers. Then we lose, you know, not as many, but almost as many organizers in the next month. If we acquired them, we would lose. If we acquired them, we would lose. And you have to think to yourself, 
imagine if we could do a, a much better job to retain organizers. And if we do that, then the, then the growth opportunity is much more significant. So the, the issue was churn. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest issue. You found yep. a way to reduce churn. When, yeah, it, when you find a way to reduce churn, and then of course the pandemic hits and then you know, churn is always, yeah. always ends up, uh, end, ended up following. But the ability to reduce churn was the number one priority, yes. So, so how did you reduce the churn of organizers? What were the steps that were taken? So there's a number of, I mean, there's so many, there's no one, one thing, but a number of things that we've done, I'll just list a few. So when an organizer decides that they wanna leave, um, we made it a much better process for someone else within the group to step up to become an organizer. So we would say to the people in the group, hey, the organizer's stepping down, your group is gonna potentially go away. Does anyone wanna step up? If you step up, the group is gonna stay. So we've got and ended up getting, and have gotten and have grown kind of that take rate of people who want to step up so the community does not go away because some communities could have tens of thousands of people as part of that community. And when that happens, um, no one wants that community to kind of just die. Yes. So um, we had a very high take rate and improving take rate around that. That has helped quite a bit. The second is that we've done a number of different studies and found that there's certain behaviors that correlate that are leading metrics to our organizers churning much faster. And that kind of data is very, very important. So the, the number one metric for an organizer to churn is whether or not the group gets to at least 20 members in the first 30 days. So we got it down to a science. You get 20 members in the first 30 days, the likelihood to churn is like six or seven X lower than if they don't have, you know, if they have a small number of members in those 30 days. So Sorry, I want to interrupt you. I want to make sure I understand this. So you're saying sure. that if you get, 20 to 30 members in 30 days is that, is yep. that 30 20 plus members 20, 20 plus members in 30 days the group is unlikely to churn when you say the group doesn't churn you mean the organizer the organizer yep the organizer doesn't like leave the group and abandon it and exactly because then they have a community and they yes and then the next key item after that is that you need to have the first event that happened within the next 30 days after that if you have a group and you have 100 people in the group and you never have an event, then the organizer is going to leave. So we need to we need to encourage and nudge and provide best practices and advice to organizers on um, how to schedule that first event. And then after that first event, how to get the second event schedules. Once an organizer has X number of members in their group, let's say 50 plus, if had multiple events, the likelihood to turn is dramatically lower. Key behaviors that are so important that you want to nudge and you want to drive um, to ultimately have your organizer take as much advantage of the product as possible. So it's like someone buys a gym membership and they never use that gym membership, they're going to leave the gym. So you got to get them to use the gym. It's interesting you should say this because just a few days ago, I was talking to the CEO of one of the big streaming companies in the United States, which I won't mention by name, but they had a very interesting way of thinking about it because they were talking about how they want to take on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And they did not view their subscribers as subscribers. They viewed them as a community. Mm. And they said that, what if we can have a community whereby when we launch the show on Monday, season one, episode one, we can have an event where we can get everyone together and we can start discussing the first episode in real time. I love that. I love that. That's, that's really smart. They should use Meetup for that. 
I'll, I'll <laughs> feel free to make an introduction to you guys because yeah. I, I mean we were talking about strategy and how they can compete with with Netflix and I said don't view your subscribers as subscribers they're your community this is happen to be paid community members I, I I really think that that's um the right way to approach it because when you're able to build community around your product you have zealous users and you have viral marketing and and that's become sticky and if you think about the best products out there whether it's apple's iphone or you name the product that you're fill in the blank um it's because there's zealous users that will wait online to be the first person to get the iphone 11 or 12 or 13 and community drives that and that's why so many companies work with us to figure out ways how they could drive community for their products as well and it's, the interesting it's, thing is that the subscribers are already doing it. They're already on Twitter. They're already tweeting. Yeah, you're just well. organizing them. Yeah, and I mean, imagine if you can bring some of the stars of that show onto Ooh, the community of the other. That would be quite amazing. Right? That would be fun. But what's interesting to me is how few companies think about their subscribers as a community. It's, um, I think, here's what I think. I think that 10, 15 years ago, there was no such real thing about around social media. It wasn't, a thing now every single company has social media manager social media director etc it's a implicit part of every company's strategy in the future there's going to be a community manager in every company or multiple yes. community managers in every company where they understand that the goal of building their business rests not in quote unquote social media is just going to be a channel but the goal of really building their business is building community and we're already seeing that there's a whole number of different there's an organization called cmx which is um, a big conference for people who run community in companies. And that, that every year, it just continues to grow because more and more companies are realizing like the streaming platform that you named, and this is across the entire world, that the path towards retaining customers and enabling them is building connections and relationships between people. Like our top KPI yeah. is the fact that we build 30 million connections every year between people. And if a brand could build a million or half a million or millions, then, then their product will end up deriving the benefit. And what's interesting about the concept of community is that you are retaining and turning your subscribers into brand evangelists by not paying them more. You're not paying them anything, you're not cutting costs, you're not offering them a discount. You're offering them a place where they feel accepted and they feel as if they're part of something bigger that they want to be a part of, right? It's a very different way to Well think. said, and I like how you said they're part of something bigger. That's really important in community building. Aligning around a mission is so important. At Meetup, our mission is curing the loneliness epidemic. And, and that's what we align our employees around. That's what we align people around. How do we drive, decrease loneliness in this world, which is just unfortunately incredible. 46% of people regularly feeling lonely. And, and if an organization is able to use that mission and that noble cause to elevate um, their work and build community around it, that's, that's gonna be a lasting company. It's interesting you need to talk, you're talking about loneliness because it's quite funny. You were talking about Mercer before I was interviewing the head of Mercer and I'm talking to a loneliness expert after this. That is absolutely amazing. I mean, that's what Meetup is about. Um, uh, besides the 46%, 62% of millennials regularly feel lonely. And, and you know, I've certainly read scientists have found that lo being lonely to one's health is actually more detrimental to one's health if you're lonely on a regular basis 
than smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. So um, the, uh, th th there's dramatic health and life quality impacts to um, not having community and not having people around you. Well, it's more than that, I would say. It's even deeper, it's bigger. It's a geopolitical issue. I'll give you an example of this. I was speaking to, a in one of the podcast episodes, a chief economic planner in the Japanese government. Wow. And they were yeah. telling me their biggest issue here is how to get their workforce more productive as it ages is to stem the tide of loneliness. Nice. It's Beautiful. a strategic issue for them. It is. And it ultimately, it builds company culture and it builds um, connections between people and other users of a product. It's absolutely, it's not just being nice, but it's being smart for a business leader to focus on. It's in a manner of speaking, it's as you could translate into saying, Japan's goal to increase GDP by 1% is to reduce loneliness amongst older employees. Wow, I love that. But that's what it is, right? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. Sure. Many values of community. That's certainly one of them. Another value of community is just when, when people are different from each other, they oftentimes don't get as much exposure to each other. And that results in xenophobia and other type of type of challenges. So the ability for a uh, organization or for a community to help to help people learn from people who are different from each other is, is, is incredibly valuable and, and particularly important, I think, in the world today. David, I must say you're a great advert for Meetup. <laughs> Thank you if so much. If ever there was a CEO who perfectly reflected his company's culture, it would be you. That's, that's kind of you to say. Thank you. I mean, it was a wonderful conversation. I learned a lot. And I really love the way, you know, this entire conversation, it's almost as if we discussed the higher purpose of Meetup. Yes. It's why I joined the company. It's why most of our employees joined the company when they could get jobs at, at really well-known kind of um, bigger, more impressive sounding you know, companies, yes. but they join it because they understand that, you know, you're only here on this world for a certain period of time. And we want to have as much of a positive impact as possible. And Meetup enables that for so many. You know, some of the things you should be doing is, I know that the Japanese government has this as a priority. You guys need to approach them. The Chinese I, government I, is also doing this. They also have it as a strategic priority to reduce loneliness amongst aging workers. It's really... The New York Times did an article actually among women who are 55 and above, and they did a study of meetup members 55 and above, and they found that when people are women who are part of these senior groups end up living happier and longer lives when they're a part of meetup than if they're not part of meetup. I and mean, we have a lot of third-party studies that kind of have validated the happiness impact and the, and the decrease in loneliness from, from using the meetup product. It's, it's really quite, quite extraordinary. And then you can line up all of the streaming companies that are competing with Netflix and tell them, this is the way we're going to do it. This is it. There you this go. This is it. Not new content, new communities. Yes. Well said. Well said. <laughs> David, you know, from this pleasure. podcast to God's ears. <laughs> Got to get this, this podcast in front of billions of people and we'll be in great shape. <laughs> <laughs> That's the plan. Thank you so much, David. We'll be in touch. I really enjoyed that. I did too. Thank you. Take care. Ciao. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. 
It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.